Good morning. <clears throat> if you would, please grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. We're going to do just a flyby one day on the book of Esther. Um, upon studying this this week, I realized, man, there's a lot here. So we're going to hit the high points and um, try and glean some, some application for us uh, from the story of Esther. Um, there's a reason why it's in the scriptures, and we're going we're gonna to pray that God gives us wisdom and, and how that uh, relates to us. If you're, if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament stories, you're well, well aware of the relationship between um, the Israelites, um, God's people, and God. God called this, this group of people, the Israelites, um, and set them apart, and had this, he has this special, unique relationship with them where he said, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people and he even goes to the extent of pulling them out, like <clears throat> physically, out of Egypt, out of slavery, and placing them um, in the promised land, setting them apart physically um, so that they are unique, a set-apart people, um, so that they would worship him. But if you read the Old Testament, you see this roller coaster of all these stories of Israel um, believing and trusting in the Lord, and then Israel, um, some of Israel choosing to worship idols choosing to follow pagan practices, um, choosing to marry pagan wives when God's instructed them not to. And so you see this up and down, this roller coaster of, of Israel's um, faithfulness um, towards God. Because of this, God um, gives them over to their enemies. Um, so we see where the, 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 the kingdom of Babylon comes and takes over um, Israel. And they don't just take over them, they exile them out of their homeland. And so they're, they're kicked out of Jerusalem, cast out of Jerusalem, um, and sent to live in captivity uh, under Babylonian rule for 70 years. So 70 years they're in exile, um, and at, at the end of 70 years, um, if you read the book of Ezra, at the very beginning of Ezra, uh, it speaks of God giving the prophet Jeremiah um, a prophecy that one day God would raise up a king named Cyrus from Persia, and, and Cyrus would, would as soon, like one of the first things he does is before he, or when he becomes king is to send forth this decree that the Jews can then go back to Jerusalem. And so they're no longer held against their will in Babylon. They're allowed to go back to Jerusalem, begin building back the city, building back the temple, the walls, um, all of that. <clears throat> but we see that only about 42,000 of the Jews actually go back. Some of them stay, stay back in Persia, in, in Babylon, and, and they're just kind of okay with um, living in a pagan world, um, mixing in with the crowd, and not being um, devout Jews. And so, um, so you've got people that went back to Jerusalem um, because they're devout and they want to be with God's people. You've got people that stayed back um, with the pagans. And so that's some of the, the, the scene that we see here. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, like, if, if you were to discipline your kids and give them a consequence, at the end of the time, they'd be like, eh, we're, I guess I'm okay, I'll just stay, you know, in this punishment for, for a while. Um, and, and so we, we see this, this tension there of, of devout Jews that went back and those that, that stayed in Persia. This is the context um, that leads into... Uh, into the book of, of Esther. Esther is real interesting because it's, it's got all the, the different components of a really good story. You could make a movie about it. They have made movies about it. Um, there's a VeggieTales series. I'm, sur I'm sure most of you guys have probably seen that. Um, it, what we'll see is the scripture's account of Esther is way different from VeggieTales. Um, <clears throat> but 
there, there are all these different elements of a great narrative, a great story um, within Esther. There's um, really good uh, character development. Um, these characters are pretty complex. Um, and then there's, there's uh, some good, the struggle with good and bad, and then there's a plot twist at the end as well. And so um, let's start by just kind of developing some of these characters in Esther. So in chapter one, we're introduced to the king. Uh, so King Ahasuerus, he's got a weird name, hard name to say. Um, also in, hi- in our history books referred to as King Xerxes the first. It's a lot easier to say, or we'll just call him king. So you've got the king. Um, <clears throat> he's been ruling at this time for just a couple years. Um, and we, s- we see that his kingdom's pretty big. He's got 127 provinces that he rules over. Uh, huge territory. He's got lots of money because he's the king. Um, lots of possessions. One of the, the things that it keeps coming back to when it describes this guy is he likes to party. This guy likes to party so much that he has one party that's 180 days long. 180 days long, six months worth of partying um, from, from King Xerxes. And at the end of that party, I guess he thought it went so well that he wants to extend it to just his close friends and family. And so he says, we're going to party for another seven days after that. And so in, we, we see in, in that seven-day period in the second party, he gets this idea of, he, he, for one, I mean, the guy, the guy is, he's drank way too much. Um, he's drunk. Um, and he, he's self-consumed, and so even the relationships he has are only to benefit himself. And so he calls his wife, Queen Vashti, um, in and has this idea, you know, I want to show everybody how great I am. I'm going to display how attractive my wife is. Terrible idea. And, and so he brings her in and, or, or calls her and says, hey, I want you to come, um, I want you to come display your beauty um, for all my party guests. And she says, no, I'm not doing that. That's a terrible idea. And so you can picture his relationship with his like uh, court advisors as almost like an ancient fraternity. And so his frat brothers are like, bro, are you going to let her like treat you like that? Like you should, you should do something about it, dude. And he's like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe I should. And so he, he decides to make a law that says, um, and it's kingdom-wide, this law that that commands that all women are to obey their husbands um, no matter what, obey and honor their husbands no matter what. He also decides to kick Queen Vashti out of, um, out of her office of queen. So she's removed from being queen. And then, you know, his, his, his friends are like, well, now what you need to do is you need to start this huge search to see who's going to be your next queen. And you need to pick the most attractive person in the whole kingdom. And so that's the only qualifications that, are, that they're looking at in this. It's not personality, intelligence, any of that. They're only fixated on physical appearance. Um, and so he sends, he sends his, his group of officials out into the country um, to recruit um, for his harem, for this group of, of women that he will, out of those group of women, he will choose a wife. Um, so you see a very... Uh, a very poor, insecure leader. Um, he, he doesn't make uh, good decisions. Um, he's, he's always drinking too much wine and uh, just not, not, a very good, not a very good leader. So we see that in the king. The next character that we see in the story is Mordecai. So Mordecai, it tells us, is, is a Jew. Um, he's a Jew. He's a descendant of Kish and from the, the tribe of, of Benjamin, um, 
we'll see more about the, the ancestry and the, and the important role that the ancestry plays in this, uh, in this story. A lot of, a lot of other uh, books in, in the Old Testament don't put as much of a focus on Gentiles and where they're from. We'll see some of that here in a little bit too, where it's talking where people, um, the lines that they came from. But Mordecai is a Jew. He's a descendant from, K- from Kish. Um, he had been taken from Jerusalem um, and was part of the Babylonian exile. So he was taken from Jerusalem, sent to Babylon, um, and now he's part of the group that has stayed back. So he didn't, he didn't go back to Jerusalem when all the other devout Jews went back to rebuild the city. He stayed in Susa, which is um, where this, this, this story takes place. Susa is the capital city, kind of the fortress city of Persia. Um, the palace is there, um, everything... Uh, that centers around the Persian Empire is, is in Susa. Um, the next character that we see in the story come up is, is, uh, is Mordecai's cousin, Esther. Mordecai's quite a bit older than her, but Esther is the daughter of um, Mordecai's uh, uncle. And so, so Esther is his cousin. Um, and so her parents had died um, when, when she was younger, and now she's under the care of uh, Mordecai. Uh, her cousin. The one thing that it talks about with Esther in the story, as you can imagine, is, is her, only her physical beauty. It doesn't say anything else about any other characteristics, about how smart she was, how, um, in, in, how good her personality was, solely her, her beauty. And so it plays a factor in, in the next uh, portion of our story. And so we know that about Esther. She was very, very physically beautiful. So there's a couple side notes for context um, that I want us to see before we continue. In, in reading and studying the book of Esther, um, the observations that we're going to make may portray Esther and Mordecai in a little bit different light than what you've seen in VeggieTales or maybe what you've seen just hearing the story retold. Um, because we're going to look at it in a contextual um, point of view, understanding where they are in that time, um, understanding what's the language that's used in the passages, what words are used, what words are left out, um, and we're going to read it and observe it for what it, what it says. When we do that, we're not going to discount Esther and Mordecai. Um, we're not going to discount how God has used them, um, but we're going to take a, a, a look at the text to find a greater application to the story than just the work of, of Esther and Mordecai. So remember, what we talked about a second ago, that the, the Jews that were all devout had returned to Jerusalem, but those um, that stayed back, they weren't as, as concerned about following um, the law and being religious and practicing Judaism um, in the way that, that God wanted them to practice Judaism. And so as we read the story, we need to read it in the context of God working and keeping his promises in spite of man's disobedience and spiritual apathy. We're going to see God at work in details that are not chance or luck, but instead divine providence. The focus of this story is not just on the moral example of Esther and Mordecai. Sure, these, these, these have acted in ways that are good for their people, but that's not, that's not the main focus of our story. It's interesting that as you read the book of Esther, you'll find that the name of God isn't mentioned once. Never once is the name of God mentioned in, in the book of Esther. Um, though Esther and Mordecai are of Jewish blood, they don't really display the same character and faithfulness of other Old Testament characters like Daniel. Um, I point this out to shift the focus from the, of the story from the actions of man 
um, to magnify a gracious and merciful God who works for the good of his people in ways that only he can. Okay, so we're going to see, we're going to see some evidence of that as we, as we go through this story. So back to the story. Um, so Esther, because of her great beauty, she's chosen to be a part of the king's harem, and she's brought in uh, to the king's palace to live and go through these beauty treatments that are like uh, six months of, of this kind of treatment, six months of this, so a, a year's worth of preparation before they are sent in to the king um, to spend one night with the king. After, after first meeting the king, he requests to see her again, um, which means he liked her. So he requests to see her again, and then after that, he decides to make her uh, his queen because she, she's found the most favor in his, in his eyes. So at this point, Mordecai has told Esther not to reveal her ethnicity, not to reveal that she's Jewish. Remember, they're in Persia. Um, at, this, at this point in time, like the context of it, we don't have, like we're not able to, uh, to gather that they have any reason to, to be fearful of being Jewish. Um, based on the context of, of them being Jews that remained and didn't go back to Jerusalem, um, there's an assumption that some of, uh, some of the way Mordecai was living was assimilating some with pagan uh, culture. And so it seems as though Mordecai thought it'd be a good idea for her to be queen, that to, to be, not be in poverty anymore, to be queen um, instead. And so he tells her not to say that she's Jewish because it wouldn't go well with her in the selection process of being queen. Um, when I was growing up, there was a show... Um, reality TV show um, where they select um, a cast and you had to, you know, submit these videos and all this stuff, a very, um, a, a lot of debaucherous stuff going on in these shows. And so think about people that, that, that send in a casting video for shows like that, that where there's things happening like that. They're probably not going to say, yeah, I'm a devout Christian. You know, they're, they're, that's not going to go well with you to be selected to be on that show. Um, and so, uh, so Esther's chosen into, into the king's harem. Um, no one in that court knows that she's Jewish. Um, Mordecai is the only one that knows her true ethnicity. So after Esther's been queen for a while, um, Mordecai is hanging out the, at, the, at the king's gate, and he overhears these two eunuchs conspiring to assassinate the king. And uh, he sends word to Esther that he heard, overheard this. Um, Esther tells the king um, that this man named Mordecai overheard, you know, the two eunuchs. They do some investigating, figure out that it, indeed it is, it is true and accurate. They were conspiring. So the king has them um, executed, has them hung uh, on the gallows. And that's kind of the end of that story. Like the king just kind of moves on. There's no, there's no uh, reward. There's, there's nothing done for Mordecai to show appreciation um, the king just goes on uh, being, about him, being about himself. Um, and so we, we move on to, um, to chapter 3, and we see our next character. We see uh, Haman, the Agagite. And so Haman, um, when he comes into the story, it tells us that Haman's been, he's been working in the king's court, but now he's been promoted um, to almost being uh, about the second in command of the entire kingdom. So he's got a lot of authority. He's got the king's ear. Um, he's, he's a big deal in, in the kingdom. Um, Haman was a very prideful man. Um, he loved the status. He loved the fact that the king made a decree that anybody who was in Haman's presence 
had to bow down and show homage um, to how great Haman was. Um, he loved it. I mean, it was just, it was something that um, kept feeding, feeding his, his ego. Um, so remember we said, we said that Haman um, is an Agagite. Um, so he's a descendant of King Agag. So 600 years before this, there was a situation where God told King Saul to go and totally annihilate, wipe out the, the Amalekites. Um, the Amalekites were people that were oppressing the Jews, um, kind of keeping them from being in the promised land where they were supposed to be peacefully. And God said, I want you to go and take your armies and totally wipe out man, woman, child, nothing left of the Amalekites. So Saul goes, but Saul was a very prideful king, wanted to do stuff his own way, add his own flair to it. And so he took Agag alive as a, as a, as a prisoner of war. And in the, in the, in, in the way of him taking uh, Agag alive, some of the royal family escapes alive. And so um, because of this disobedience, you see, you see God reject King Saul. And so that was um, part of the demise of King Saul and, and the fall of, of him as, as king of, of, of Israel. Um, the interesting thing here is the connection between these. So you got Haman, who's a descendant of King Agag, who should have been killed by, by King Saul, but he wasn't. He was allowed to live. And then you've got Mordecai, who is a descendant of Kish, and Kish is the father of King Saul. And so Haman knows that Mordecai is Jewish, but probably also found out that he's related to Kish, the same family that tried to kill his, his ancestors. And so, so you, see, you see this, later on you see this, this incident that, that, that takes place in the city gates where, where Haman's walking through and people are bowing down, paying homage, and there's one guy that doesn't, and it's, it's Mordecai. And so he's like, who's that guy? And they said, that's Mordecai the Jew, son of Kish, and he's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And so there's a high possibility that Haman was aware of his family history with Mordecai's descendants as well. You'll see that connection there. And so we see, we see a, an evidence, um, an example of how King Saul's sin, generations after that, affect where we are now. So King Saul's disobedience led to now the fact that now Haman is actually alive. Um, and a part of this story. So Haman, Haman's filled with rage, and he's not just mad at Mordecai, he's mad at the fact of, man, I wanna wipe out their whole people. Um, I wanna wipe out the Jews altogether. Um, but I really want Mordecai to suffer, but I wanna, I wanna wipe out all the Jews. And so Haman goes to the king, and the king, you know, you could probably assume he's, he's probably drunk. I mean, every time it mentions him, he's doing something with wine. And, um, and Haman goes into the king and says, hey, I want to pay money to the kingdom, to the royal fund, in order to annihilate this whole people group. And the king doesn't say, like, well, man, what did they do to you? What, like, what happened? He didn't, he didn't ask any questions. He doesn't do anything. He gives him the signet ring and says, hey, man, yeah, write, write it in the law. Like, do, do, do what you want with the law. Set it in motion. And so, so Haman does just that. He puts forth this decree that's backed by the king's signet ring that on a certain day coming up, um, a month or so from then, that the, uh, that the Jews will be destroyed, completely 
um, removed from existence, um, that every Jew would be killed. And so Mordecai hears of this decree, and he's, he's devastated, as you could imagine, that your, your life is, is now, now there's a clock ticking um, with your expiration date and, and your people, your people's expiration date, your heritage, everything um, has, has an expiration date on it. And so he hears of this, he's devastated. Um, Mordecai sends word to Esther. Remember, everybody, nobody in the kingdom still, other than Mordecai, knows that Esther is a Jew. Um, sends, sends word to Esther and says, ask her to approach the king and to implore his favor and plea with him personally for, uh, for her people. And the interesting thing about this king is that he set this law in motion where um, if, if anybody were to approach him in the inner courts and he didn't beckon them, he didn't call them in, he would have to extend the golden scepter. And if he didn't extend the golden scepter, then the punishment for that was death. How many of you guys work, work from home right now? So for me during COVID, like this reminded me of this, where I'd be in my office and I'd be working and then the door... Dad, 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 what, what's for lunch? And I was like, man, I need a golden scepter to, no, I didn't extend it. You can't come in and ask me any questions. And so, so the, king has, the king has this law that anybody who approaches him, he has to grant them um, the ability to, to, to come in um, and ask their question. And so, uh, so Esther knows that, that there's a good chance that the king could deny her request and that she could die. Um, look, grab your Bible, look at, at chapter 4. Let's look at verses 13 uh, through 16. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you will have, have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so three days later, Esther approaches the king and he extends the golden scepter and so he, he allows her to come in and ask her question. And she said, he says, you know, what's your question? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. Which he's saying that, he probably doesn't mean it because he wouldn't, he wouldn't give anything up. Um, he loves himself too much. But he says this, like, what's your question? What do you want to ask of me? And she says, I'd like to invite you and Haman to a banquet tomorrow. And so he said, that, that's it? And she said, well, I'll, I'll tell you my question there. And so invites him to the banquet and, uh, and so they, they have this, um, this banquet, and then at the banquet, he asks her again, like, what, what's your question? Anything up to half the kingdom? I'll give it to you. And she says, basically, I need more time. Let me have another banquet for you tomorrow night with just you and Haman, and I'll ask my question there. And so Haman leaves this banquet, and he's just on cloud nine. I mean, the guy, the guy loves himself. He's super super hyped about, about being in a VIP where, where it's just the king, the king's wife, and him going to these special banquets. And so he goes home, and on his way home, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow to him. He's filled with rage again at Mordecai. He gets home, and he's telling his family, he's like, man, I, like everything is great 
except for I just really want Mordecai to die. I really want to kill Mordecai. And they're like, well, you should, you should, you should have the king kill him. Like tell the king tomorrow that you want him, want him killed. And, and you should do it by building gallows that are 75 feet tall so that you can hang him on the spikes of it and everybody in the city will be able to see it. And he's like, okay, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. So he has, he has them built, um, has the, uh, the gallows built. And then the, that night, it tells us that the king is trying to sleep and he, and he can't sleep. And so he asks for one of his servants to come read to him. Grown man. Um, asks ask for his servants to come read a book to him because he can't sleep. Um, and this is how self-consumed he is. He doesn't ask for Dr. Seuss or some other kind of nursery rhyme. He, he wants... He wants the servants to read to him the book of like current events. Like, tell me about what's going on in my kingdom so I can fall asleep thinking about how great I am, how great my kingdom is. So the interesting thing is that what do they open up and read? They read the story of Mordecai hearing, um, overhearing about the, anas- the assassination plot um, to take the king's life. And he sits up in bed and he goes, well, this guy Mordecai, like, have we done anything to celebrate him, to honor him? And they're like, well, no, no, we haven't done anything. And so he goes, well, is any of my counsel here? Any, any of my friends, are they around? And they said, well, I think Haman just walked in. And so Haman walks in at just the right time, um, and the king brings him in, and he says to Haman, he says, what should the king do to, to give honor to the most honorable person in all the kingdom? And Haman thinks he's talking about him. And he's like, well, uh, I think you should get the king's horse, put a crown on it. And you should dress, dress this guy up in noble robes and you should like parade him around the town and just declare how great he is and what he's done and how, how he's the king's favorite. And the king goes, that's awesome. You do the same, you do all that and you go get Mordecai and do it to him. <laughs> and I'm sure he was like, whoa, what? And, and so you see this, this huge, um, this, this beginning of this plot twist um, where, where Haman thinks that he's in control, but, he, but he's not. And so you see this, this awkward picture, too, of, of where you've got this guy on the horse who knows that the guy that's leading him wants to kill him and his whole people group, <laughs> and he's having to, like, be a part of the parade and wave, and the guy dragging him wants to kill that dude and his whole people group, and it's, it's really interesting, the, the irony there. So later that day, um, Haman's back at the banquet. So after this parade, he's back at the banquet with, with the king and with Esther. And the king asks Esther again. He says, what, what is your request? And flip over to chapter 7. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. So the king asks, what's your request? Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And I'm sure those two guys in the room were like, well, what? Like, you're Jewish? We never knew. And and so she's, she's saying, like, this is my request, that you spare my life and my people's life. And so now we see a little bit more of how disconnected the king is with everything. Because look, look at verse 5. Then, king, uh, then the king said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? So he's like, he, he doesn't even remember 
that he gave, he gave Haman the, the signet ring to put this law into motion. Um, and he played a part in this. Who did this? Who could do such a thing? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And so then the king didn't know what to do. So he leaves the room for some reason to gather his, gather his thoughts. And when he comes back in, Haman uh, had thrown himself onto Esther to beg for mercy um, and ask her to, to, to save him. And the king comes back in, misunderstands that, takes it as, as, as him making an advance on his wife and is outraged and says, like, how dare you do that? And then it flips even more because one of the eunuchs says... Well, there's a gallow that, that Haman made to hang Mordecai, the guy that we just honored this morning on it. Like, we should hang him on that. And the king goes, yeah, throw him on it. Hang it. So now Haman gets hung on the same gallow um, that he made for, uh, for Mordecai. So we see this huge, huge plot twist right there. So we can recognize the bravery and the courage to approach the king with fear of rejection and death. Mordecai and Esther are, are big pieces to the story. Um, but they're not, they're not the hero. The focus for here is not just to look to them for more moral examples. Like I said before, God is never mentioned at all in the story. There's no prayer. It mentions, it mentions fasting, but it doesn't mention petitioning God, begging for God, pleading with God um, to save them. There's no acknowledgement of God. They, Esther and Mordecai... Um, did brave things that God used them um, to save and preserve their people, but there's no acknowledgement um, of God. The story it serves us well being in our Bibles, um, not primarily as a moral story, but as a story of God being at work to keep, to keep his promises. This is a thread that's woven all throughout these Old Testament stories. Um, all these stories are part of a greater story of God's glorious redemption um, through sending his son who he said would be born in the line of David, a Jew, right? So God has to preserve um, his people, the Jews, in order to send the Messiah. So we see God working in the midst of um, a people not, not acknowledging him um, for that, that work. So this, this, this idea of God working um, for his purposes is called providence, divine providence. Um, the, we use these words, providence and sovereignty, um, when describing some of the characteristics of God and what God does and how he acts. Um, God acting in his sovereignty, his ability, um, his right to be and rule over all things. That's his sovereignty. Um, God acting in his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes and his will is providence. So him carrying out his sovereign will is, is providence. There's, uh, there's a thing called the, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's got uh, doctrinal questions and answers um, that, that, that communicate doctrinal truth um, for us. There's one, it's the 27th question in the Catechism. It says, what is, uh, what is the providence of God? We're going to put this on the screen. Let's look at this. It says, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures... And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And there's a follow-up question 
as well that says, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Like knowing that God is, is providential, that he's working and moving to carry out his will, how does that, how does that help us? Let's look at this. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. There's a couple passages that we're going to look at that involve um, speaking about God's providence Proverbs 21.1 is really applicable with, with this story. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's pretty cool. Job 42. Sorry, not Job. Job. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Oh boy, it's only the second service. Job 42.1. I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 103.19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we see, we see these examples of, of God's providential rule, that God is, is working and moving to carry out his purposes there's a balance of that, though, because within God's providential rule, there's, there's a responsibility of man. So I want us real quick to look at three things um, in regards to man's responsibility within God's providential rule. The first one is that God is sovereign and man is not. It's pretty, pretty cut and dry. God is sovereign. He's all-powerful and man is not. So we see in the story where, where Haman is deceived in thinking that he's the one that's in control of the outcome of the story. And he's the one um, that has the power. And he's the one that's doing these things. Um, but he's wrong. God, God is the one that's sovereign. Um, when you remember the story of, of Joseph in, in Genesis where his brothers sold him into slavery um, and they meant that for evil, um, you see the end of the story where his, his brothers fall before him and are crying out for mercy. And he says, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God, God was in control of all this to preserve his people. So we see an example of that there. We even see it in this story and in, in how, um, how Esther was made physically, that, she would, that God created her physically attractive um, f- to be in that position. Um, and we see that, that, that God gave her favor uh, with the king. So the second thing within man's responsibility in God's providential rule is that we are responsible for our choices and the actions we make. So you can't blame the choices you make on God. You can't blame your consequences for your choices um, on God. You are responsible for the, the choices and the actions um, that, you, that you take, that you make. clear example in this is, is the fact that Haman's in the story, right? Saul, King Saul, was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites altogether, um, disobeyed. And so we see evidences of the, the bad fruit of his disobedience. Um, in, in the existence of Haman in the story. Um, another easy application here is what happens to Haman. Haman, Haman is, is devising wicked and evil things against the plan of God. And because of that, he, he, gets, he gets what he deserves. 
Um, if, if we're all honest with ourselves and we think through this for a little bit, we can, we can think of consequences of our own sin, where our own sin um, has, has caused consequences, and we're responsible for that. We can't, we can't pawn that off on any other thing. We can't blame shift that. We are responsible for what, what we've done, the choices we make, what we've done. The third thing is, is that when we remember that God's, we remember God's providential hand, it leads us to faith and to worship. I want to look real quick at just a, a poor example of that that we see in, in what happens in the rest of the book. Um, immediately after this, uh, after Haman dies, Esther goes before the king and says, hey, the edict's still going forth that they're going to kill the Jews, so can you remove the law? And he says, even better, I'm going to give you the signet ring and let you make a law um, that removes that edict to where they won't be killed. She gives, it, she gives the signet ring to Mordecai. Mordecai passes a decree that the Jews can attack their enemies or those that they perceive to be enemies um, on that same day. They end up killing 75,000 Gentiles in two days. 75,000 Gentiles in two days. The difference in this and the difference in what happened earlier in the Old Testament when, when God was giving, giving the people um, their land is that God decreed, God said, go forth and kill kill these people, wipe out these lands. Um, but here, like it, doesn't, it doesn't say God told them to do that. Um, they did that, did that on their own. There was a festival that they, that they set up after this um, called Purim. And in, in Purim, they celebrate their deliverance from Haman, um, that, that, they, that, 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 that they were spared and that they weren't um, annihilated by Haman's plan. But when we see that this feast compared with any other feast that's instituted in Scripture, this one's instituted by man. All the other feasts are instituted by God. So you look at Passover, where, where God delivers the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he says, because of what I did, I want you to remember that. And this is how you're going to remember me. You're going to do these sacrifices, these prayers, these things, all these things in order to remember what I did and there's no mention in Purim of, of God's deliverance. There's mention of them not being killed, not being murdered, but there's no acknowledgement um, that, God, that God did it. And so um, if, if we're honest with ourselves, if, if we think back through the course of our lives and where we are now, and, and whether pleasant things or unpleasant things, um, it, man, it's good to sit to sit and think and dwell on the, God's providential movement um, with where you are. The events that have taken place in your life that were beyond your control, that have placed you where you are, where you live, where you work, what you're doing, the favor that you have with certain people, um, and acknowledging that God did that and not, not you, right? So there's some, there's some things that, we, that we've misplaced credit, just like the Jews did, where we've taken credit for ourselves, um, and so it's, it's a good practice that leads to worship when we remember and acknowledge that God is providentially working uh, in our lives um, for his glory, for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, um, God, that you're sovereign, that you're in control. Um, God, that you um, are all-knowing, that you know um, all things, that nothing uh, takes you by surprise, nothing shocks you. Um, God, we thank you that you have a plan, 
um, to, to glorify yourself. God, we thank you for your plan to preserve your people. Um, God, we thank, you, we, we thank you for how you use, um, you use your people in spite of um, their disobedience, in spite of their wickedness. And uh, God, we just pray that we would be mindful of that, that you would, um, God, stir in us um, a remembrance of how you've um, placed us where we are, how you've um, given us positions, favor, um, experiences, um, people shaping us, speaking into us. God, all for your purposes, for your glory. God, I pray that we'd be moved to worship because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.